I mean, your point about um, all the other characters talking about Hannibal, I think that's that's also a broader problem with the script. I mean, mm-hmm. um, I mean, there are a whole lot of action set pieces in in this film, and that's you know that's that's par for the course, and that's that's fine. But the scenes that aren't action oriented, they're actually really talky. Like, there's a lot of mm-hmm. exposition delivered through dialogue here, yeah. right? Um, just yeah. one example I'm thinking of, um, near the end, when um, they've they've captured Hannibal uh, King, and he's just, he's talking about how he, he has this basically microchip implanted in his ass. And, like, <laughs> this is apparently how um, Blade and... <laughs> yep, that's it. That... That's exactly what happened. That um, Blade and um, uh, Abigail and, and Abigail Whistler um, are cut. Co- like that's the only justification that's given for how they know where he is, right? And how they can find it. And that's just lazy script writing, right? I mean, that could very easily have been planted earlier in the film, and it just wasn't. Um, no. I can't and remember there, there is... what writer it was who said that any time that two characters are talking about a third character, it's bullshit. Yeah, I've heard that before. I forget. Who it, it probably is. wasn't Dave Goyer. <laughs> no, no, no. It was um, definitely not. But I, have to, I also think the sort of they're all other people's talk problem also applies to Dracula, because yeah. like there's like mm. there's an early montage of sort of like how badass he was in the days of Mesopotamia, where he's in this weird demon guise that he takes on again near the end, uh, and he's you know reaving his way across the Middle East until he decides to, you know, hibernate for a few thousand years. For some uh, reason. Yeah, is that ever reason, explained never why explained. he says you shouldn't have woken me? Like, no. Oh, yeah. No. All right. Just because, like, yeah, I mean, I mean it could be because, you know, he's haunted by this curse of being the first vampire, but no, he fucking doesn't have that kind of character it's development. Uh, so, like, there's all this talk about uh, about how badass he is, and you think it's going to be one of these situations where, like, you can't possibly fight him toe to toe because he will just straight up murder you. So you have to run. So and then when they finally come, get there, Dracula runs away. Yeah. And there's this long, long sequence of Dracula and uh, with Blade and Hot Pursuit running through the streets of L.A. I guess it's supposed Esperanto. to be. Esperanto. Esperanto City <laughs> with his magistrates. Uh, and then he just stops, and he's got a baby. And they have this long, stupid talk about honor and all of the people down below scurrying like ants. And that and whole speech is so generic. Oh, yeah. Oh, I yeah, everything said, like, you said just sounded I, like it was I from the third man. <laughs> I literally rolled my eyes when he... Because he literally says they're all just down there scurrying around like ants. They have no sense of honor. Forget it, Blade. This, like, is this is Esperanto. This is a... This <laughs> this is, a, it is a, it's a bad it's a bad Klingon villain speech from like the first uh, from classic series. There, there's two problems here. Well, there are a lot of problems here, but we'll talk about two right now. With, with Dracula specifically, uh, yes. which Dracula? Is, there were many. Yeah, this Dracula. Okay. Uh, no, number one is conceptual, and you know, in film one, the villain is Deacon Frost. And the film ends with Blade fighting this ungodly-powered Deacon Frost. And uh, over the course of the film, Deacon's kind of like a douchey little guy, but eventually he's this badass villain that Blade has to fight. And Blade... La Migra! Yeah, La Magra! And La Magra? La Magra, yeah. Oh, it's La Migra. No. Um, and Blade beats him. Okay. 
In the second film, Blade has to fight Nomak, who is a horrifying monster, who is even more deadly and even even more you know, terrifying, and he beats him. At this point, we're pretty confident Blade is going to physically beat what we throw at him. Like Physical threats at this point are not a threat to him. So what you need to do if you're going to establish Dracula as a threat to him is it needs to be more of a cerebral threat or an existential threat. And the, the point yes. that has come up with the FBI thing, I mean, if Dracula is using external sources to weaken Blade, or if he is using the relationship that he has with Blade as a way to undermine him, that becomes yes. interesting. But just another bad warrior is not interesting. Yeah, mm -hmm. like, for, for instance, like, right when he's dying, uh, he talks about sort of, like, the foolishness of these vampires, they're looking for the future of their kind, mm -hmm. and it's you. Mm -hmm. And if that had been something that had sort of been developed, that, like, you know, Dracula was trying to take Blade under his wing, yeah. and that he's not really on the vampire's side, but they still have to fight, that would be a potential, potential interesting direction. This, this is a movie that's full of these sort of, like, potentially interesting ideas that then mm -hmm. get buried under a fucking... Ryan Reynolds and Dominic Purcell. Oh, that, that, um, that's the second thing that's wrong. It's the casting of Dominic Purcell. Uh, but before we get there, there's another thing I want to... In terms of this talking about sort of the endless raising the stakes, one of the things that I found particularly uh, problematic was uh, throughout the movie they sort of referenced that the vampires had come up with the vampire final solution. And we find out what the vampire's final solution is prior to uh, the climax. It is a warehouse full of homeless people that they have abducted, and they're just draining of blood so they don't have to, you know, hunt people anymore. Uh, and this gets resolved in literally 30 seconds. They find the technician in charge of this place, threaten her, and she turns it off. And they just walk away. They just fucking walk away. And the, the, it sounds like the stakes are going to be really fucking high because they're invoking the goddamn Nazis. It's the final solution, but it's just a fucking warehouse that they shut down right away. Uh, before I watched any of this film today, from when I saw it in theaters, I remembered exactly two scenes. Sorry, One was Cutting Jessica Biel yeah, loading up the iPod uh, and Ryan Reynolds saying, she likes to listen to playlists. <laughs> She's making playlists. And the other one was Blade and various others infiltrating some kind of warehouse where, where uh, people were having blood drawn from them. Yes. Nothing else about the film. I didn't even remember that Dracula was in it. <laughs> Which would be oh, so I, easy I, to do. Yeah. Like, yeah. Totally. yeah. The, the, uh, so, on the warehouse of homeless people thing, I will point uh -huh. out that maybe one of the reasons that this feels completely out of place and low stakes is this was actually a plot point taken from a deleted scene in the first film. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, of course. Uh, yeah. Isn't this the whole plot of that movie Daybreakers with Ethan Hawke, though? Oh, I haven't That's seen Daybreakers. Not. I just assumed it was. Neither I assumed I. it was terrible, even though it had Ethan Hawke and Sam <laughs> Neill in it. Um, so Dominic Purcell. Dominic Purcell, Derek, star you, of John Doe and Prison Break. Is he related to Steve Purcell, Derek, who created Sam and Max? Dominic Purcell? <laughs> <laughs> um, I have I have very few thoughts related to Dominic Purcell. He does not cognitively engage me in any way. Um, you know, completely bland. And, you know, I don't think it's completely 
Purcell's fault. Yeah. Um, again, I think, and I think also, like, yeah, Ryan Reynolds is Ryan Reynolds, but I don't, I don't think it's completely Ryan Reynolds' fault that his character is so annoying. I mean, the script here, um, yes. again, putting aside any structural issues, any, you know, misused plot potential, it's just badly written. Like, the dialogue's badly written. Um, it's, you know, it's not natural in, in the sense that, like, contemporary Hollywood screenwriting There was, there was a line, when Abigail was loading up her iPod, where Ryan Reynolds said, she likes to listen to MP3s. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's not, it's not naturalistic dialogue. Yes, and he also says that his favorite music is David Hasselhoff. <laughs> that, that's timeless. Yeah. And then there's also just the issue of, all right, so you've decided that your backstory for Dracula is that he's like an ancient Sumerian Mesopotamian warrior demon, uh, and when he turns into his human form, he becomes the blandest white man actor you could possibly (laughs) find. Yeah, yeah. Why do you cast him? No, no, he's got an open shirt and a a bad necklace, so he's exotic. (laughs) The other problem is he kills John Michael Higgins' character. That fuck, I just noticed there's a Y-Wing behind Derek. <laughs> I, Stay on topic. I'm focused on Derek's <laughs> copies of uh, the first three Song of Ice and Fire books. I was like, what is most that? Of our it's all Y-Wing. <laughs> Little off topic. Yeah. Um, he kills fucking John Michael Higgins, well, he that ki- bastard. So he kills John Michael Higgins. Before he kills John Michael Higgins, I, I will give Purcell credit for this. I liked the way he played the Hot Topic scene. Yes, he wanders into essentially a hot topic. It's a vampire memorabilia store, uh, and he is royally fucking pissed off about Count Chocula. He does not like Count Chocula whatsoever. Also, the Dracula dildos. The Dracula dildos. I don't know. I thought he was slightly interested in that one. I felt like he was like, "Mm, maybe. Honestly, that might be the best scene in the film. Uh, I really like that first opening scene, but yes. It works in so far as. It communicates information to you about Dracula's character that you would, you you can comprehend. You you can understand why he feels that way. You can understand right. his motivation, and he reacts the way that you would want him and expect him to react. Right, like pretty much. He's constantly talking about how much disdain he has for humanity and what it's become. But that's really the only time we get to see him actual uh, actually disdaining actual, humans. That's his only interaction with the world, other than running running away from Blade and stealing that baby that one. So time. what sour him on humanity is hot topic. Also, yeah. also that whole scene with the baby. It's like, oh God. what is this? Like a 1915 melodrama? You're threatening to throw a baby off the roof of a building? <laughs> He's a like, monster. How lazy can you get? Like, there's clearly some kind of, you know, he, he was clearly writing the script whilst high, like, or just being extremely lazy. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's amazing. I was like, what? Like, I, I, the entire time I'm watching this running scene, I'm like, why is this happening? And then he's suddenly holding a baby. I was like, what? He has a baby? <laughs> what is going on? Why is he running? Why is he stealing babies? Why is he speechifying? It also doesn't help that, I mean, to, you know, transition to uh, slightly, I don't think Wesley Snipes is completely um, without fault here either. I mean, he's he's as bored as we are through the whole film. So it might be worth... He really... 
He really liked that FBI plot line, and then it got all shot to <laughs> yeah. shit. Yeah, I was going to say, it might be worth talking about why Snipes is so disengaged here. Um, I would be interested to know which movies he exactly was not paying taxes on. <laughs> <laughs> Because I personally, personally, I like the idea that during the second film, he actually began to identify as Blade. And so by the third film, he took it as a personal insult that they were writing so poorly for him and directing him so poorly. And he started to uh, give up his Wesley Snipes persona and decided that he no longer had to pay taxes because the, the taxes were in the name of Wesley Snipes. And no tax forms were being sent to Blade. Okay. Well, we, we got the end of that. We did not get the first part. But I agree yeah. with you. So we got the message, yes. We, we, we got yes. where you come from. The, the, I, I would like to explain what you sound like right now. Uh, you sound like GLaDOS uh, from Portal. Like, if oh, GLaDOS, okay. right. like you're, you're going through a GLaDOS filter, but, like, coming in and out. Like, you have that kind of distortion on your voice. And when, when right. you break, when I'm, you cut out, it's a GLaDOS stop. Sorry. From what I read, the reason uh, the reason he, he didn't like the movie uh, was essentially that this <laughs> giant really pile on of new this giant pile on of new sidekicks. Yeah. Essentially, he, yeah. he would have wanted to just you know stay on the core of Whistler and uh, Blade, and then you bring in fucking you know the goddamn honeycomb hideout with its, you know, yeah. five people and its precocious child and their horrible naming scheme. And there really and is... kill Whistler for no reason. There really is something to that, Yeah, I was that, very right? upset that they I killed mean, the, Whistler. The loss of yeah. Whistler is a real loss to the film. Well, he, here, yeah. Here's, yeah. Here's Chris Christopherson was was the second pillar of the of the series. Yeah, pretty much. Like, he, he, Whistler was so important to this series that after killing him in the first <laughs> film, they still found a way to make him a central character of the yeah. second film. They, yeah, yeah, they went way out of their way to bring that character back. But if we, t- and yeah, yeah, if we, there's something. Go oh, ahead. Okay. If, if oh, we, ke- I mean, God damn it! <laughs> <laughs> go, go. If we keep talking about like missed opportunities in this film, so. Let's ignore the, uh, let's ignore the tertiary characters at the honeycomb hideout. Let, let's let's keep focus on, uh, on define tertiary. <laughs> anyone All who, of them? anyone who is not Jessica Biel or Ryan Reynolds. Okay, yeah. And I'm I'm giving Ryan Reynolds the benefit of the doubt there. Um, okay, there's a way to make this work though. So the relationship between Blade and Whistler throughout the first two films has been, you know, Whistler is the mentor and the father figure. And Blade is the son and the mentee. If you kill Whistler early in the film and introduce his daughter, then you invert that relationship. And Blade becomes the mentor to Whistler's daughter and has to pass on the lessons that he learned from her father, who was never a father, to her. And that can be interesting. It doesn't happen. Mm -hmm. No, yeah. and again, there are sketches of that in oh, the yeah. film, right? There are Use sketches it. of that in the yeah. script, right? Use yeah, exactly. it, or, or you know, when when he first basically meets the whole team in the in the honeycomb, fort, yeah. like I, that's, you know, what, that's and, what it is. We we, we, Can, we should point out that is what Ryan Reynolds in his annoying sort of always cracking wise persona calls the place, and there's no indication that's not actually the name of their hideout. So it is. Yeah. Um, can we go so, back to the yeah, title no, of the I film? Mean, like, Blade Trinity. I, I would be really interested uh, to they, see I, I the, think... the drafting process that this script went through. 
because it's clear that there there are kind of elements in place that could make for a much better script, and that it's clear were like consciously put in there with the plan of develop de- developing them into yeah. into bigger lines, uh, and they just don't develop. Yeah, I mean. I, I think we all have some issues with the Jessica Biel character because there's definitely flaws there. But yeah, if, if, it, if it had just been, like, if you had taken out Patton Oswalt and Natasha Leone and Ryan Reynolds and the other guy and the kid, if they weren't there and it's just like Whistler dies and he gets rescued by this weird, mysterious lady with a bow and arrow and it turns out to be Whistler's one, that would have been such how, a movie. How dare you, okay? Let's go back to the title of the film, Blade Trinity. There's clearly supposed to be three main characters, or, or the, the, there's so, going to be some kind of relationship of three in the film based on the title. The film that Dracula we get, Blade, apparently... The, the vampires. Three. Done. Well, I, I, I would say that uh, the film that we get, they're either trying to do Blade, Dracula, Ryan Reynolds, half vampire, vampire head, former vampire, or Blade, Jessica Biel, Ryan Reynolds... Yes. What we should have and I, is I think it's Blade, the latter. Yeah. Blade, Whistler, Patton Oswalt. <laughs> get rid of Ryan Reynolds. Get rid of Jessica Biel. Imagine. Bring in Patton Oswalt as third character who is comic relief because you have Blade, super serious, occasionally makes a joke. Whistler makes a joke at Blade's expense sometimes. Uh, and then you can bring in third character who is nothing but jokes. So you're, descri- you're describing Lethal Weapon 2. Ah, <laughs> uh, okay. <laughs> you are. It's true. Uh, though I, I would like to see like that whole subway just gonna be able to kill everybody, but with Patton Oswalt. <laughs> yes, like, Patton that Oswald is absolutely is, what I would like to see. He's carrying the groceries and he's got a baby. Big yeah, and the entire gang. Oh like, my god, he's wearing sweatpants. <laughs> and he's got a baby <laughs> Bjorn. And he pulls out the stupid fucking laser bat lift. And he kills, <laughs> no, excuse me, ultraviolet bat Yeah. this is, I mean, this is uh, a good three or four years before Patton Oswalt really blew yeah, up, yeah, right? I, mean, I didn't even know who is, he was for another three years. That guy from King of Queens. Yeah. Yeah. That is yes. who he is. So, Yet already a powerhouse of comedy, just he hadn't gained the widespread recognition that he later would. Um, so I, I'm gonna. I'm gonna uh, give and if you have credit. seen the fourth season of Justified, then you know that Patton Oswalt can carry some fucking action. <laughs> uh, to go back to go back to Duge's point about potential trinities in the movie, uh, it had never even occurred to me that there could be the, the sort of the Daywalker, the former vampire, and the original vampire thing. Uh, and that again is sort of a potentially interesting road not taken because. Uh, Ryan Reynolds and Dracula have exactly one interaction. Uh, he, Dracula throws a knife or something at him and injures him, him yeah. stabs him, and then kidnaps him later in the guise of Whistler for reasons that are unclear. Those are the only two things. They don't talk to each other. There's, no, there's not any kind of like, oh, you're a former vampire. That's interesting. There could be some interesting dynamics there, but well, there's, they, there's no not. sense of... You know, when you, you think about the, the film that I always go back to when I think about this, and I referenced this on the last recording we did, is uh, Star Trek II Wrath of Khan. One of the things that makes the Wrath of Khan a really interesting and resonant film is all of the action in the film parallels the themes of the film and the thematic journey that the protagonist takes. 
Whereas in Blade Trinity, none of the action in the film <laughs> any theme or any journey that the protagonist taken. There is there is no sense of the film operating on any level other than the level that we see directly on screen in front of us. It's pure denotation. Yeah. Yes. With its terrible uh, like Mortal Kombat like soundtrack and all that shit. Uh, One thing I do want to I do want to at some having... point. Sorry, go ahead, dude. Uh. I was just going to say that a, a thought that I kept having while watching the first half of the film was that I really wanted to see them fight vampires without any new technology. I, I, I wanted to see them, like, not have laser bows or cool, badass whip knives. I wanted just old-school vampire fighting or, you know, a gun that looked like it had been pulled out of a storm drain. You know, uh, I, I didn't want everything to be shiny and new. Yeah, mm. I think that's a good point. And then also there's the weird thing where you have kind of the cue scene where Patton Oswalt is like showing all of the Night Stalkers really stupidly named Arsenal. And there's, there's even this part where he pulls out this like really big gun that apparently can fire anything. And it is never used. Yeah, there's no payoff. That's right. Yeah. At no point, like they have the stupid laser bat They have that. Uh, but, like, yeah, you show him, like, three or four other things while he's being all QE from uh, Bond. Uh, and uh, what are some of, where are some of the stupid names? Chekhov's interrupted the, coitus. The, uh, <laughs> the, 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 <laughs> I lost my train of thought. I don't know. Anyway. The virus. You said the virus. Oh yeah, oh, yeah. all the, all the dumb names they have for that. So the virus is the Daystar, and this one of the items that uh, Patton Oswalt shows. I don't remember what it is. Uh, it's called a sun dog. The corn holder. Then, oh god, the sun dog. <laughs> the oh, sun he dog. said that, and I just slumped oh, in my god. seat. Yes, that that would have been a very reasonable time for you to go. No, I'm sleeping now. Yeah. Uh, we call this the sun dog. <laughs> and I mean, sun dogs are a thing that is a feature of the sun. But no, don't don't use that for a name. That's very dumb. Uh, and I God, I, I do like the word daystar movie. though, mostly because of Penny Arcade, because that's what they refer to the sun as the daystar. <laughs> but, but again, it falls into the problem of trying so hard because they there's this emphasis they place on it when they say it, as though it's the coolest thing they've come up yeah. with. <laughs> It's not like they have a cool name and they're totally nonchalant That's about it. That's what it was the, like. Uh, they had this. And I feel like, like Patton Oswalt and Natasha Leone had this uh, conference where, like, what's the coolest fucking name we can come up yeah. with? And Patton Oswalt was like, the fucking Daystar. And, and I she think, was like, fuck yeah, Daystar. <laughs> and the film wants the payoff to be like the um, the CGI sequence near the end where we actually see the Daystar working. Yeah. Like I. I feel like that's that's pretty much the payoff we get. Um, yes, and pretty much. that's you know I think that that also speaks to something I I wanted to talk at least a little bit about. Um, I don't know how much mileage we'll get out of it, but just like the um, just the stylistics of the film. Um, oh the way, yeah, the way it's shot and cut. Um, just starting off, like editing in this film, the the action sequences i don't know what it was about them but i definitely noticed how quickly they were cut um in a way that i did not notice in the first blade film and i did i didn't see the sequel um but in in the first blade yeah in in the first blade film 
the the style was I mean it was invisible in a sense right I mean it was sort of Hollywood standard continuity kind of thing with um, you know usual quicker cutting in the action scenes but here I really noticed it and that's usually a sign that um, something's wrong <laughs> you know if you start seeing the cuts and the frequency of the cuts either it means that it's kind of straining your cognitive capacity to apprehend all the information on screen or that there's some kind of weird continuity issue. Um, and I think it's the former. But. There's, I, I think this is, this is as good a time as any to open the can of worms that is Dave Goyer. Like, actually tear the can of worms open. Mm-hmm. Um, if we think about the previous two films in the series. So, the first one, directed by Stephen Norrington. It was Norrington's second film. Um, and, like, like you said, Derek, it, it's, it was not a directing style that you noticed. It was style-ish, sort Mm. of pre-Matrix, but preceding the Matrix in terms of what it was trying to do in terms of costuming. It was a style through art direction. It was style through through mise-en-scene, right? That's a very very good way to put it. Um, And that's fine. It worked. The second film was Guillermo del Toro. And del Mm. Toro has a very distinct visual style that he is pursuing. And even at that point, being sort of earlier in his career, this was before Hellboy even, you know, he still had, I won't say he he executed perfectly at all points, but he definitely had a vision that he was Mm. was going for. Goyer, I feel like this being his first film, and him not necessarily being the guy that was envisioned to direct this film, stepping up having been a writer... I don't think he had a directorial vision and consequently just kind of leaned on what he could to try to get through the film. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that extends to things like editing, like shot mm-hmm. composition, like the way he would structure various scenes. But I think it also just extended to, to more basic things. The way the film looks, I mean, it's... One of the things that bothered me throughout the film is Blade is wearing a lot of fucking color in this film. He's wearing a lot of red. Mm. Um, yes. There's no sense of really dynamic settings or dynamic lighting. If you think about, again, the second film, you have set pieces that are defined not just by the action happening, but visually defined. You've got the ninja fight in front of the UV lights. Mm-hmm. You've got the final fight in the hangar, the temple-like hangar with the light coming through. I mean, you, you have these pieces that don't just communicate information to you by what is happening, but by how it looks and how it is happening. And in the, this one, it, it just felt like Goyer, because he... He's not a director. He doesn't have that additional level of vision. He was just kind of thinking, well, okay, this looks cool in this moment, and this looks cool in that moment, and assembling it piecemeal instead of really putting a vision up on screen. Yeah, I mean, and th- the way that the film compensates for that is is in the editing, or at least it tries to compensate tries to. through the editing, right? I mean, it's through kick- quicker cutting. Um and you know, like it at at points, it gets so fast that you actually notice it, or I noticed it at least. But there, there was a scene yeah. where, like, I think they were tracking down ultimately what led them to John Michael Higgins, and it was 
a split screen of multiple fast cut fight sequences happening mm-hmm. at the same time. Mm-hmm. And it was impossible to keep track of. Mm-hmm. And like in a fight sequence in film, you can go for confusion as what you're trying to communicate. But there's a difference between going for confusion and being confusing. Uh, Bester, do you want to talk about John Michael Higgins for a minute? Because I know you love him. You love John Michael Higgins. What was that show that he was on? Kath and Kim. Uh, Kath and Kim, thank you. You're welcome. Uh, which I watched solely for John Michael Higgins because it was not a very good show. Uh, uh, let's see. I'm just seeing. Uh, John Michael Higgins is sadly not in enough of this movie. Uh, he gets introduced on this very strange sequence where he and the chief of police of... Esperanto Town uh, are uh, both talking about vampires. He's a pop psychologist, uh, and then once they get captured by, uh, once Blake gets captured by the FBI, he's called in as sort of the expert psychologist to declare that he's a sociopath, which I don't think is how psych exams really work. Uh, but I also, also don't think that uh, that the 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 psych evaluator is allowed to order the police out of the room as if he's the lawyer. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Well, also, he and both the chief of police are both vampire familiars, so, yes, obviously they're not playing by the rules, those fuckers. Uh, And that's effectively his last scene, unfortunately. He's got those two scenes, uh, and then you have to sort of go track him down and they show up there, and they burst into the room, and you go, why is John Michael Higgins wearing that stupid fucking necklace? And then they realize that's fucking Drake. Wait, which is, and then that's the end of John Michael Higgins. Again, though, I mean, it, which is very sad. Even, even if we set aside the fact that he is John Michael Higgins, there's another missed opportunity there. I mean, if, mm-hmm. if you're doing kind of like the media campaign against Blade and the FBI hunting down Blade, you bring in that pop psychology element, and that can be yeah. interesting. Yeah, like, he has this whole thing where he's, like, doing this, like, you know, pop Freudian, uh, trying to analyze why people think they're vampires, because they have, like, weird relationships with their mother and like drinking blood for sexual satisfaction. Yeah. Uh, so he gets disposed of really quickly. The chief of police comes back during sort of the really quick resolution of any uh, anything happening with the final solution, because he's just there, and, he, and Blade murders him, and then they shut down the final solution. So there's all of these kind of plot elements that they're setting up in these first, uh, in this first, you know, 15 minutes or so of the movie. Uh, and they just, you sort of knock out the John Michael Higgins piece of that gambit there. And then later sort of perfunctory, you go, oh yeah, the police chief, he's involved in this. We'll, we'll fucking kill him. And then at the very end, James Remar, uh, shows up at the very end of the movie and you go, oh yeah, there was a whole plot there. It's so amazing. So, yeah. 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 Especially the, the criminal misuse of James Remar. Yeah. Because, yeah. uh, honestly, I would like the Blade as the fugitive from the law, which they kind of set up because there's this whole giant escape from uh, custody, and uh, Jessica Biel and Hannibal King and unnamed black guy who's also in the, uh, in the Night Stalker show up, and they drive away and, like, a Volkswagen minibus or something like that. And they're being shot at by all the police in Esperanto town. But there's never any indication after that point, up until the very last scene where the FBI bursts into uh, Parker Posey's lair, that 
he's in any way a fugitive from the law. The film completely fucking forgets about it. But, but God, that Wanted poster that just said Wanted, Blade, was hilarious. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Not not John Blade, not first name unknown. Yeah, yeah, it's not, yeah, it's just Blade. Uh, And I realized when I I said that where they burst in, we really have not talked about well, who are the ostensibly the vampire antagonists of this movie? We've yeah, only the, briefly the, uh, talked about Triple H uh, or Parker Posey in any regard. So there, there are th- besides Drake, there are three characters that sort of set the plot in motion. Uh, there is Danica, who is played by uh, the normally delightful, and I'll still call her delightful, Parker Posey. Yeah. There is her brother, her incestuous brother Asher who is played by Callum Keith Rennie. Yes. And there is their muscle, <laughs> again, the implausibly <laughs> named, Yarko Grimwood. <laughs> played by professional wrestler uh, Triple H, or I think uh, Paul Levesque is his name. Yeah, something like that. Mm. Uh, yeah, I looked on I looked on Wikipedia, I was like, is that, is that Triple H? And I looked up, and I was like, no, some guy named Paul something. Yeah, and then I took up the link, and I was like, okay, yeah, yeah that's, that's Triple H. Mm. Uh, and Triple H's character has, like, diamond uh, fangs. Yep. And as we learn after Ryan Reynolds is captured by, uh, by the vampires, he has, and he regards it as his personal pet, a vampire Pomeranian. I fucking love that Pomeranian. I will give I will give credit where credit's due for the Pomeranian. It's at least better than Hulk dogs. Yes, <laughs> no, the Pomeranians I don't mind. Uh, I kind of wish that when they had when Ryan, Ryan Reynolds' extent of his climactic showdown is chasing the the vampire dogs off the building. Pretty much. Uh, and I kind of wish they had been more like silly small lap dogs as opposed to two like Rottweilers, I think yeah. those are. Yeah. Yeah, so it's like the Pomeranian shows up and two Rottweilers. Like, but those are actually intimidating dogs. Like, if it had been like a it, Schnauzer and a Dachshund. Exactly, like a long haired Dachshund and like a Beagle somewhere <laughs> around the corner. Please, please, a vampire Shih Tzu. A, a vampire Shih Tzu. A goddamn oh, teacup Chihuahua. And Brian Reynolds shits his pants because it's so scary, and he has to run. And I'm like, why don't you just fucking shoot the dogs? Because you can't get away with that. Have, you have can't been, shoot the vampire dogs. You can dogs. throw them out of windows. Yes. Someone must have done vampire cats at some point, right? I'm sorry, what? Someone must have done vampire cats at some point, right? Uh, not I mean, in not in this movie. I'm sure somewhere I, in I the know, history I mean, of vampire fiction, somebody has, has posited vampire cats. 